Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Gay Men Going Deeper. This is a podcast series from the Gay Men's Brotherhood, where we talk about personal development, mental health, and sexuality. Today, you've got me as your host. I'm Michael, and I wanted to have a very open and informative conversation about sexual health. There is a lot we don't know on this topic and a lot of misinformation out there. So to help dismantle some of the myths and misconceptions we have, I have a very special guest with us today. Pharmacist Drew is a certified HIV pharmacist and the owner of the PrEP Clinic. He regularly presents to healthcare professionals on LGBTQ inclusivity in healthcare, and he encourages the uptake of PrEP and HIV care. In 2019, he was recognized with a National Pharmacy Award, and last year he co-authored a National Guide for Pharmacists on PrEP and PEP. He's a firm believer that education should be universal, and he's passionate about fighting stigma. So Pharmacist Drew, thank you for joining us today and shedding some light on this topic. Thanks, Michael. Very happy to be here. All right. So let's jump into some of the myths and misconceptions out there, specifically with respect to STIs and PrEP. So one of the questions that I uh, hear around a lot and I kind of see is people saying that STI uh, rates are increasing. Is that a myth or is that a fact? Yeah, I mean, I, just to give some background, I'm going to be giving more of a Canadian perspective. Uh, that's where I really practice. Um, so we do know from trend lines that we do see increases in rates of STIs or sexually transmitted infections among gay men. Um, so that's currently a challenge for sure. And that's why this talk is really important in terms of, you know, knowing, you know, how you can get an STI, what the risks are and how to get tested and all those important pieces of information. Absolutely. I, um, I'm on PrEP. And so I've been on PrEP since 2016. And I'd say one of the great things about it is that I get tested every three months and I do a full battery. My, my doctor does uh, blood tests, urine tests um, for me every three months. So in a way, I think that has helped me get tested. Whereas before, when I wasn't on PrEP, I'd only go if I needed to, right? So let's talk a little bit about what STIs can be treated and cured and which ones can't. For sure. So um, I usually break it into kind of bacterial infections and viral infections. So bacterial infections are things like gonorrhea, chlamydia, um, syphilis. Um, so these things, there are treatments available. Now, with that being the case, there are some harder to treat versions of these bacteria. And you might hear the term of resistance um, or, or our highly resistant uh, bacteria. Um, and basically, that means that we have to use different antibiotics. And some of the older ones we used to use aren't working like they used to. Um, nonetheless, typically we can effectively treat those three things. Um, then we talk about things like hepatitis C, which is a virus uh, that previously um, was not treatable, although we now have very highly effective treatment for, um, but it has about 96 to 99% um, cure rate or effective cure rate. Um, then we obviously have things like HIV, which are not curable at this moment, but there is effective, highly effective treatment for people to be on um, where they can actually be to the point where they um, actually can't pass it on to a partner. Uh, that's something called undetectable for those who aren't familiar with that terminology. Awesome. Yes. And we will be talking about that a bit later. Um, I think that's super important and great. With respect to what you're talking about, uh, the resistant, is that where things like super gonorrhea and the drug resistant gonorrhea, I've heard a lot about that. Uh, yeah. There seems to be a bit of a scare, when I, especially when I was in Europe. And I know you speak sort of more to the Canadian aspect, but when I was in Spain, uh, they had been talking, the guys there had been talking about it there. So what can you say about that here in Canada? 
I mean, in Canada, we haven't seen this drastic increase where it's, you know, rampant through our practice. I mean, in our practice, we do a lot of treatment for patients, even people who aren't on PrEP. Um, but we do know there's cases reports, and it's obviously a challenge. Um, as something, you know, there's more resistance, it's harder to treat, uh, becomes more challenging from a, from a clinical standpoint. I do know some countries have higher rates of this than Canada. Um, and right now, at least in, a, you know, in our perspective, things are manageable, but we still want to be very mindful um, of the risks and the concerns with that. So what can somebody do to prevent gonorrhea and a lot of these other STIs? So, I mean, the best part, one thing is just to get tested, uh, know, your, know your status, know things. Um, when you get gonorrhea or chlamydia, that can be at different parts of the body. So some people just may get a urine test, but that doesn't mean they don't have it maybe in their throat. Um, and people may not even have symptoms. So the only way to know for sure if you have these is to actually get you know, a urine test, but also site-specific swabs. So a throat swab or a rectal swab, depending on your risks. Um, other than that, um, condoms are certainly highly recommended. Um, they, they can effectively protect against things like gonorrhea and chlamydia. And it is, it's mindful that when people go on PrEP, we still encourage them to be mindful that condoms um, are definitely an option because PrEP is only produced for HIV prevention and not protecting against other um, sexually transmitted infections. Yeah. And so personally speaking, I'll, I'll share my experience. So as I said, I've been on PrEP since 2016. And um, I'll be honest, I've used, I've not stopped, but I've significantly reduced my use of condoms during that time. And in that time, I've also had STIs twice. I think I had gonorrhea twice and chlamydia once. Uh, two of them were like in the same. Um, and it, it was interesting. I mean, I, I think that what I see from my perspective is that when there are people who are, I, I live downtown Toronto for the, for the listeners out there. So there are, I think what I see, at least on Grindr, if that's, if that's much to go by, there are a lot more people on prep than there used to be from, from what I see here. And so there's kind of this mentality that, oh, okay, well, if I'm on prep and you're on prep, then we don't really need to use condoms. However, to your point, and with my experience getting gonorrhea, um, that is not the case. There is still, you know, a great reason to use condoms. I think that's a really good point to make. Um, I'll also mention that we are looking into kind of other prophylaxis methods besides just PrEP. So um, there are some antibiotics that may potentially be used and you might see it being used occasionally in researchers if you have a doctor who's doing a lot of um, interest in that where you actually may be on taking some uh, antibiotics prior to a risk to try to prevent syphilis or chlamydia or things like that. Um, so not just PrEP as being the only prophylactic option for an STI concern. Yeah. Um, and with respect to uh, getting immunized or vaccinated, I think you, you just talked about, um, was it hep C? That's new, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so hepatitis C. Um, it's hepatitis C isn't, isn't super commonly uh, transmitted through sexual activity. It can be, um, you know, uh, using, uh, um, you know, intravenous drug use, recreational use along those lines would be a greater risk factor for that. Um, but hepatitis C does not actually have a vaccine. Uh, when we talk about vaccinations and sexual health, we're usually talking about things like hepatitis A, hepatitis B, and HPV. Um, for those who aren't familiar with all these different things, hepatitis is essentially a viral infection that can affect the liver. Hepatitis B, um, at least in a Canadian uh, context, context, most people have been vaccinated when they were younger in school, if they grew up here. And essentially what can happen with hepatitis B that can be acquired through sexual activity and that can potentially become a lifelong infection in some people. A lot of people will fight it off, but some people can become this ongoing chronic infection. 
Uh, hepatitis A is usually more something you may hear about if you're traveling um, because it can be acquired through eating things that are undercooked and different things like that. However, hepatitis A can also be acquired through some sexual acts. Uh, the most common thing would be something like rimming, which would be a potential route of, of, uh, of contact for that. So definitely, you know, to be mindful of being up to date on hepatitis A and hepatitis B. And HPV, which is the human papillomavirus, a lot of people talk about this more usually in context of cis women um, because it is the leading cause of, one of, of cervical cancer. Um, however, that virus can also, is what causes anal genital warts and also can cause uh, cancers in, in, in men as well. So there is a vaccine for that. Good to get earlier in life rather than later. Um, so something to be mindful of when you are speaking to your healthcare provider. And for me, I think, is that, is, is it Gardasil, the HPV one? So it'd be Gardasil, it'd be, it's about Gardasil 9. Okay, yeah. Do you have to get a booster for that or is it a one-time? So right now, the, the administration schedule for Gardasil is you get it right away, then two months later and four months after. Um, as of our best knowledge, there is no known um, extra booster to do later after that. Okay, I know, Drew, that you're passionate about mental health. So let's take a minute to talk a little bit about how um, mental health can impact your sexual health. Yeah, I mean, one thing I learned when I launched the PrEP clinic was that a lot of individuals on PrEP have significant HIV anxiety. And with anxiety, that can certainly drive people to want to be on PrEP, um, but that can also be a hindrance where you are so paranoid and so scared that you don't even want to get tested. Um, so we've, we've addressed a lot of individuals who are first-time testers or haven't been tested in a while, and it's kind of this repeated pattern of, of being just being scared of that result and not understanding. And then on top of that, not only does it, is it kind of the self-attacking um, on it, it also gets projected onto others because your fears and your anxieties related to that then treat other people maybe who are living with HIV in a negative way or being judgmental, or it can also um, turn into... Um, where you're just, you know, it affects your relationships and your ability to open up to somebody. Um, we've also, of course, met a lot of individuals who have all types of mental health backgrounds and everyone has their own, you know, their own challenges in life. Um, and if somebody, you know, is, is you know, not, let's say has depression and it's not being treated and does that affect some other their decision-making in a sexual context? Um, if someone has any, any, you know, medical condition and it's not being managed or treated, how does that affect their decision-making? Um, so one thing we have, at least with our service is we do have a mental health counselor on, on staff who does provide that because we have had those individuals who are very concerned about different things. That makes a lot of sense. And something else I think is that for a lot of people who might be in the closet or, uh, have, you know, reasons for not wanting to disclose these things, speaking to a medical professional can be very challenging for them. They may not want to. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely, it's, it's problematic for a few things, because if you're not sharing this with your medical provider, they're not going to know that you're a potentially at risk. They don't know to offer you PrEP. They don't know which test to order for you. So um, we, we live in a very heteronormative society where the kind of testing you're going to get done, no one, like a lot of doctors don't think I'm going to, you know, order a throat swab, you know, for a cis male or a rectal swab for, for anyone. Um, so it's important they know that. And also on top of that, let's say you get an STI. So let's say uh, you're a gay man, you have uh, throat gonorrhea, you go, to the, you go to a clinic or you go to a doctor, the treatment can range depending on um, what you know, the type of person you are, because there's higher rates of resistance, for example, we know in gay men for gonorrhea um, and chlamydia as well. So um, the treatment options would differ depending on the information you provide to them. Um, 
it's tricky because obviously a lot of people have a lot of concerns with sharing that with individuals, but it's still important because the, the care you're going to receive is not going to be optimal if they don't have the whole picture. What would you say to someone who's maybe listening to this who has who doesn't have access to a healthcare provider who is uh, LGBTQ plus inclusive? Where can they find information? What options do they have? I mean, so for me, it'd be mostly Canadian context. Um, our service specifically, we are an Ontario-wide service, so we offer testing to anyone in the province. Um, and our services in general prep and everything are, are province-wide. Um, I would say generally, like, I don't know everyone's experience, but typically your local health clinics should have a lot more experience and understanding, I would hope. Um, I, I don't know if that's the case universally. I would probably assume it's probably not, unfortunately. Um, but it's really reaching those providers. Um, people can reach out to me too. We've definitely had people reach out to us even outside of Ontario, just because of where we are situated. So we've had Americans reach out to us like New York and different places. And we have tried to support them and navigate where can we refer you and where can we send you. Um, so I would suggest to, you know, reach out to your local sexual health clinics and units and see if they can support you on that. Um, reach out to your local HIV AIDS organizations. They might be a good resource. Reach out to your local LGBTQ organizations. They may know some people as well. Um, and that's probably my best suggestion. If you do get a positive result for an STI, a lot of people might find that they don't necessarily, because of all that shame, they don't want to tell their partners or, or former partners with, um, that contact tracing, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I am of the belief that if someone told me like, hey, you know, that time we did that thing, just so you know, I'm having symptoms of, of this, that, and the other, and have a positive result, I would thank them for telling me because then it allows me to get treatment sooner than later. But there's a lot of people out there who do have that shame of a having it and then not wanting to say it. And this is where that st stigma comes in, right? What can we do to reduce that stigma so that in fact, by educating ourselves and by, you know, telling people what our status is, how does that, how do we change that behavior? I think that's that's a very complicated thing to do. I mean, it's it's it, we have a systemic ideology of, on this. Um, I think it really starts with just beginning just our language use. Um, one thing that comes to mind is this notion of being clean. That if you have an STI of any type, that somehow you're dirty. So if you have you know, and that's just a even people don't even think about it. But if you really think about it, anytime anyone listening, anytime you ask somebody, "Are you clean?" Have you actually really thought about what that meant? And I think that's words matter and how we position things matter and that would be an initial step start i think i mean this is really more of a systemic change we would need we would need changes in our health education we would need changes um you know in school when you learn about things you know i guess you know they should give you the condom with the hockey stick to practice on um but where you actually are discussing you know sexual health on a wider on a wider scale uh we have more acceptance to it um, that when you talk about sexual health, that it's not just specifically isolated to, um, you know, uh, gay, gay, bisexual men, for example, that it's discussed with everybody, it becomes universal. Um, I'm really big on that. So we target everybody. We definitely, you know, are a safer space and we, you know, support the LGBTQ community. But um, when you talk about these things in a universal level, um, I remember we were discussing on, uh, as we did the sexual health campaign a few years ago, and we would have seniors, uh, you know, heterosexual cis seniors coming in and they'd be getting information slips about like undetectable and like gonorrhea and stuff. And, and it seems like, why would we discuss that? But, you know, it's, it's a universal topic. And I think you have to break barriers and make it not just to one group and make it like a norm, part of normal conversation. Um, it's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something to be hide to hide. Um, I always say we're sexual beings. This is reality. And 
Um, I guess that's my view on it. I think it's a very complicated thing to solve. I don't have like that's a, a very challenging thing to solve overnight without you know political associate uh, social change. It's it's a lot. Yeah, it's one person at a time. That's why I believe you know I like I said like I just said on this podcast I've put gonorrhea twice. There's no shame about it. It's what happens when you have condomless sex or even without condomless sex um, with other people. So I think that that's a big piece of it. So thank you for that. Okay, let's talk a little bit about PrEP. So for the person out there who may not know what it is, tell us what it is and if it's effective. Okay, yeah. So PrEP stands for pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's called pre-exposure because it's something we're taking before our risks and it's helping to prevent acquiring HIV. It works super well. Um, if you take it exactly as prescribed, it can reduce the risk from HIV from sexual activity specifically by up to 99%. So very unusual for someone to acquire HIV while on PrEP. Um, there've been a handful of cases. Um, typically it's, there's, it's often due to maybe perhaps, you know, not taking it exactly as prescribed or missing pills, things like that. There've been very, very rare cases when I say rare, extremely rare cases where there's been resistance to prep. Um, that's very unusual situation. Um, in our practice, we have several hundreds of patients on prep. Um, we've never had anyone acquire HIV while on it. Um, so yeah, so that's pretty much how it works. A lot of the data on prep is unfortunately in uh, only mainly cis men. There is some data on trans women as well. Um, trans men aren't typically super included into these studies that much. Um, we have a little bit of information. Um, so awesome. And what are the short and long-term side effects of being on PrEP? Yeah, so that's actually, that's actually a really common question we get. Um, so I think that's great that you asked that. And that's one of people's hesitations. They'll be like, oh, you know, my cousin's brother's cousin's friend told me that this causes this, or I saw it on, I read it on some blog. Um, I can tell you from my own experience and also from just knowledge on the medication um, that in terms of short term, most people tolerate PrEP pretty well. I'd say 90% of the patients who go through us, they don't report side effects. Uh, those that do, it's things like mild, mild stomach upset, headache, feeling tired. Those symptoms tend to get better or go away within a few days. Um, now there are risks. There's risks with any medication. Um, at, the, the question is, is are you being monitored properly on something? Um, so if you take Tylenol or acetaminophen, um, that potentially could cause liver toxicity. Do people, tons of people get liver toxicity on Tylenol? No, but if you aren't taking things properly or it's not being monitored, you can have problems. So in terms of long-term potential risks, one thing we do monitor when you go on PrEP is kidney function. And we do that because there potentially could be a change in your kidney function on PrEP. Um, it's not an anticipated side effect. So we don't expect it. Like when we do, when we check your lab work, we're not expecting that to have drastically changed, you know, during your three month labs. Um, but we do monitor it. And if there is any changes that are significant, we connect with you. If there's a major change, you'd have to stop the medication. Typically things are reversible. The other rare risk to be mindful of is something that can affect our bones. It's known as um, our bone mineral density. So somebody on PrEP who's on it for some time can see a very, very subtle change to something known as their bone mineral density. And that's essentially a measure of the strength of the bones. And um, we wouldn't anticipate any complication from it. Um, you wouldn't notice anything. We don't really typically monitor because it it's such a subtle change. We don't really call it what's called clinically significant in healthcare. Um, and there's no supplementations or anything like that. Typically the effects are also reversible upon stopping. So those are really the main things to be mindful of. Um, we haven't really had a lot of people having problems on these medications, at least, especially even in my experience as well um, clinically. Okay, cool. That's really good to know. For people who want to go on to PrEP, what is their first step? What do they need to do? 
Yeah, so I don't know if it's, I know there's some US programs that are a little bit different. I believe that there are some places where you can actually start it without even lab work for the first three months or something or for six months. I don't really know the full detail of that. Um, but in, from a Canadian perspective, um, we have Canadian prescribing guidelines and you essentially would have to first get lab work to start. We wanna make sure that the person's HIV negative before starting. Uh, the person would also be screened for other, with, for other STIs um, as well, and also kidney function and a few other baselines. Uh, once the lab results come in, the person can start prep. Um, depending on how it's being prescribed, it's so, somebody would either get a 30-day supply or possibly a three-month supply, and then they get lab work every three months. Yeah. And that, as I was saying earlier, that I think is one of the benefits for me of being on prep is, is I sort of go every three months to get that test, and my doctor is very thorough about it. Um, and do you know approximately how many people are on PrEP, at least in Ontario or Canada? So for specific numbers, actually, they did release some. I think they it was around, um, I think they said about 80 something hundred uh, prescriptions were filled. Um, and, and I guess they had, I think it was like last year or two years ago. Um, so number of people who would get at a time. So with that being the case, we do know that about 13% of people who could benefit from PrEP are on it. Um, so not quite where we're at. And I know you mentioned when you go on Grindr that you see everyone on prep and everything. Um, it may appear that way, but a lot of people are not. Um, it, it's, it's not as common as we, as we it should be. Um, uptake is definitely better in other jurisdictions outside of Canada. Um, and I mean, certainly our organization, what we do, we try to, we're definitely trying to help address that, at least in Ontario. Why do you think it's uh, better outside of Canada? What can we do differently? Um, I think it comes down to um, one, one aspect for sure is the coverage aspect and, and affordability. Um, in Ontario context, because each province is different, some provinces can cover it, some don't. Um, but in Ontario specifically, there are methods to cover it without any, with, people get very scared because they hear how much prep costs out of pocket. So they say, okay, it's costs, at least in Ontario, it could be like around $250 for generic prep. Um, but nobody pays that with us. Um, and, and there are methods and there are options. There's patient support programs, there's um, government programs, there's private insurance if they have that, and there's some ways to navigate it. So a lot of people are very surprised when I, we're done counseling them on the phone or through video or in person, and then we say, okay, by the way, you're processed your meds and it's gonna be, you know, cost you nothing, or it's gonna be $20, and they're very surprised. I mean, I think with us, I'd say like, majority of patients don't pay out of pocket after we kind of help them with all the options. That's awesome. That's great to know. Um, and when you say 200, what was it? The number 230? I think it's like around 250 uh, in, in a Canadian context for generic prep. I don't know the amount in the US. Is that uh, for one month? That'd be for one month. If somebody has zero supports and no connections and anything, and that doesn't really happen if you, if you speak to the right care providers. Okay, that's really good to know. Um, and what does taking prep look like for someone who might want to go on there? Yeah, so I mean, there's different ways to take prep. Um, typically, people take it once a day. Um, we'd say once a day because um, you know some people, not everyone plans their risks or their sexual activity, um, and most of our a lot of our data is based on once daily. Um, however, um, some people who are having less frequent risk exposures or sexual encounters, uh, there's something called on-demand prep or event-based prep, and that's when someone just takes their prep around the time of when they're going to be um, engaging in activity. So how that works, they usually call it the 2-1-1 method. So somebody would take two tablets two to 24 hours before a risk and then continue once daily for at least two days after that last risk. So if it's just a single event, it would be 2-1-1. Uh, if it was multiple events in a row, they'd have to continue at least um, until two days since the last risk. Now, 
some challenges with that. Um, so on demand is only currently um, used in individuals who are cis males. Uh, so trans men cannot use it. Um, they're just not data to support that it'll be effective for them. Hmm, that's very interesting to know as well. So informative. So if someone has, uh, if, if they're on PrEP, maybe let's say when they're single and then they go off of it, if they have a monogamous partner, is that something that you know you would recommend is only using it when you need it or would you recommend staying on it indefinitely? Um, I mean, it really depends on the situation. I would say my answer is it's very individual. I would never tell someone what they should do. Um, but what I will say is we definitely have patients who switch between once daily use and on demand, depending on their activity and some patients who take breaks from it altogether. Um, we, one thing we do tell patients, so if they are going to stop their prep, to be mindful of what to do if they stop the medication and then have a risk and what, what, how they address that. So things like PEP, which is post-exposure prophylaxis. So we have PrEP, which you take before risk, and then we have PEP, which you take after. Um, that's an emergency medication that has to be accessed within 72 hours after risk has happened. Earlier, the better. Um, so we just give those options. Um, but yeah, I mean, you don't, you want to give someone medication that makes sense and is indicated in healthcare, no matter what it's for. Um, if somebody has no clear reason for it, um, say they're going to, they're planning even to be, you know, during COVID, we had a lot of patients who stopped their medication uh, because they weren't meeting people. And if it makes sense for them and, and they're aware of, you know, the risks, if they go off and, and if they had a risk, a, a sexual encounter, um, the patients can make their, their, best, their best decision. Yeah. I mean, if I'm paying for, if I'm paying for, you know, per month and I'm not going to be using it, then I would say personally for me, I would say, oh, I'm just going to stop using it until that time comes that I need it again. COVID is a great example of that. I would say we, I would say a lot, we've had a lot of patients who actually have kind of, you know, are absent during COVID, I guess that's the term abstinence, um, during COVID. And they were still continuing on it because they just felt a comfort. They were, they were tolerating it well, their labs were fine. And for them, it made sense. And, you know, we, we try to support our patients the best as, as possible. Cool. Thank you. Can you tell us a bit more about um, PEP? You, you mentioned it. Can you tell us a bit more about when you would use that, what that's for? Yeah. Um, so if somebody, let's say, had had um, a potential risk exposure, so typically it would be related to sex, so um, either frontal or, or, or anal sex, um, and they didn't know the partner status, um, or the person, let's say, was living with HIV but was not undetectable, where there is potential risk of transmission, um, even though it's going to be reduced um, if they're on medication, um, or if there was a sexual assault or something happened and they didn't remember and they were concerned, um, then you would typically go to an emergency department. We say emergency simply because you need to start it right away. And if you go to an emergency room, typically they should know about PEP and how to prescribe it. And they also will have doses and pills on hand to be able to give you at least a dose to get started. Um, if you just go to some you know, random doctor who doesn't have experience in it or a walk-in, you may still end up in a situation where you're going to be referred to eMERGE or you're going to be in a situation where you have to try to track down a pharmacy after that has the medication in stock and then you're further delaying. Um, so within 72 hours, earlier the better. I always encouraged within 24, ideally, um, and uh, that's that's an option if if uh, people want to consider it. Okay, pharmacist Drew, what other maybe blind spots or areas um, with respect to other prep or um, STIs that you want to share with us? So one thing, and I actually have evolved a lot on this. I come from a very different perspective on things, and just working with a lot of people and and listening and becoming less ignorant. <laughs> I've learned a lot. And I, back in the day, I had the same opinion that a lot of people do still, unfortunately, uh, which is why are you giving people tools to be more sexually active? 
and potentially increase the risk of STIs. And to that, I say, um, you need to read more <laughs> and I'll explain why. Um, because individuals who go on PrEP, um, they, people, they're already at risk for HIV and they're already being sexually active. So we have people who um, have been at risk that, that are being, you know, not having access to an essential medication and it's definitely an essential medication and um, not maybe not getting tested as frequently. And now we have a, something where people who are at risk now have something to protect them. And just, just by the nature of it, um, if someone is engaging in anal sex just because of who they are, um, they shouldn't be at a disproportionate um, impact of that. And they, if there was a tool to help reduce that risk, so be it. I mean, we have things like the morning after pill and we don't shame people for that. Um, but for some reason, PrEP has this or PEP have these, have these uh, negative connotations. I've had patients who've literally said to me when they came for PEP that, you know, it's a great shame to me or I, you know, I did wrong, right? Or I screwed up. And I'm like, no, you didn't. You're a human being and you had sex. <laughs> like that's, it's, you, that, that's the, you know, don't, don't internalize it. Um, so that's kind of my, my view on that. And the other thing too, is that uh, just from a healthcare, purely healthcare perspective, and it hit me when I was actually teaching a course on travel health, because I do a lot of different things. And we look at things like malaria. So malaria is something people get when they travel, okay? And, or they, could, or they, they can get when they travel. And we don't have an, a highly effective vaccine for malaria. So what happens when you travel? We give a person pills. Oh, we give them prophylaxis. So you're basically taking medication because there's no vaccine. And it works very well when someone's traveling. And when they come back, they stop. Same thing with PrEP. I ask people who are, have a lot of stigma against PrEP and about this in general, I ask, well, if there was an HIV vaccine, would you take it? And a lot of them obviously would. So what is the difference if someone's taking a pill for that or daily until something like that exists or is getting a shot? I don't, I don't see the difference. Um, I think people who go on PrEP are being responsible. They're taking, it a bit, they're taking control of their own sexual health and sexuality. And um, I mean, it's, it's a commitment to go on PrEP. People, they're getting lab testing. They're getting, you know, they're taking, they're taking medication. They're adhering to this. Like, I mean, I think that's very impressive. Yeah, yep, great point. I find, <clears throat> again, from my, my grinder experience, so this is certainly more anecdotal, but I have on my on grinder, you can say whether you're on PrEP or not, you can choose to disclose that. And I have that, but when I do, people will assume that I want to have condomless sex or bareback. And that's like the first thing that says like, oh, but you're on prep. And I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what I am looking for or what I want. Uh, so that's another thing that I see from my perspective. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I mean, let's, I'll be, I'll be clear. I mean, I talked to a lot of patients and a lot of people, there are people certainly on Grindr who are on prep that only want to have bareback and, and it definitely puts that perception out there. Um, I mean, perhaps about, giving you choices and options. Um, and we shouldn't make generalizations. And if somebody wants to engage in, you know, bareback sex only, uh, that's their choice. Um, so not everyone does. And there's a lot of people who, even with our kits, when we send out prep, we also, we also offer like things like lube and like pill organizers and condoms. Some patients are like, no, I'm good. I don't want the condoms. So we have a lot of patients that, that do. And we have a lot of ones that we send it out. So um, people are, are mindful of it. And I don't think you should generalize because uh, one person, you know, wants one thing, one person wants something else. Uh, and I also don't think there's anything wrong as well, just to say that if somebody is on prep and just wants to have, um, you know, condomless sex, that's, that's their choice. And if they, you know, as long as people are being tested and know their risks and can make their own, their choices, we're all adults. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back to the shaming. We don't, we want to just stay away from shaming, uh, respecting people's choices, making sure they are educated and they have the options available. I think if you do that and you do your research, 
and you take that um, responsibility, as you said, that is the key thing. Um, what does that look like? What, what does it look like to take responsibility for your sexual health? I think just, you know, knowing more, reading up on things, um, you know, being in contact with your care provider, um, getting tested. Testing is so crucial. I mean, one in seven people living with HIV are unaware. One of the reasons we don't, you know, that we, we could, I mean, essentially eliminate HIV really, or, or sort of new infections at least, um, is if we have people getting tested on, you know, on PrEP um, and on treatment. And the only way to really know is to get tested because you don't know if you have an STI often. You don't know if you have HIV unless you get tested. Um, not everyone has symptoms, especially early on. Um, so I think it's really about reading, learning, um, and you know, being being open and engaging with uh, with whoever's providing your sexual health care. If I was going in to get a full panel of testing, what would I expect? Yeah. So if you're going to get tested standardly, uh, you would get some blood work done. Um, so blood work would check for HIV syphilis. Um, if, you're, if it's PrEP, you also get a kidney uh, blood test that would also estimate how well things are clearing from your kidney. Um, you would get a urine test that would check for gonorrhea chlamydia, depending on your risks. Uh, so if let's say you were uh, bottoming, uh, you'd want to get a rectal swab uh, that would also test for chlamydia, gonorrhea. And if you were engaging in oral sex uh, as a receptive individual, uh, you would also want to do a throat swab. Uh, those would be the standard tests. Um, if somebody did have certain um, presentations on their body, so let's say they potentially had warts, they may possibly get, um, obviously, investigation, they may possibly get um, an anal pap is something that can be done. Um, so those are, but the standard ones would be the other ones I mentioned. Okay, but a lot of them can be asymptomatic, right? So you might not necessarily have symptoms, which is why it's important to go get tested, because you could be asymptomatic going out there, unknowingly giving people uh, an STI. Yeah, we've, we've had people who have not been active for a very long time that come into our care and they're very surprised when they do a swab and it comes back with like rectal chlamydia. They're like, well, I haven't had symptoms and I haven't had sex in a very long time. And I'm like, well, you know, that it happens. So it's important that we are, you know, be mindful of that. We have a lot of people who are like, well, I only have sex once or I, or I'm not, I'm not like, the, or I get this sometimes where, and it's once again, this, this self stigma and this, in this projecting, well, um, I'm not like them. I don't have sex that much. So I, I don't need, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get gonorrhea. Yeah. And um, that's, you can't, each time you have sexual encounters, I mean, it's a, each, it's an independent risk each time, um, you know, and people need to be mindful that no matter how active you are, whether you're highly active or not active very much, that everybody needs to get tested. And we shouldn't be judging anyone depending based on their, their sexual activity. Yeah, very good point. It just takes a long time, really, right? Yeah. Um, and I know that you can speak to Ontario, but how much would it cost? Is it free to get tested? And can I go to just my regular family doctor? Yeah, so in Ontario, um, if people go to, right now, COVID is a little bit tricky right now because um, a lot of public health clinics are closed. But technically, in Ontario setting, you can go to your local public health clinic. You do not need um, ID. Um, often, they can also provide anonymous treatment and testing. Uh, for PrEP specifically, that's a bit more complicated because some of the tests are not covered by public health, like um, like a kidney test. Um, so it depends. If they come to us, um, we have a location in Toronto where we do on-site testing, whether you have a health card or not, and we do the full panel testing. Um, but typically, most uh, public health clinics, uh, some PrEP clinics, um, there's a few others, not just us, who can also provide treatment and typically don't, don't charge for that. Okay, awesome. Thank you. And I know that you're very passionate about youth as you. So tell us all about that. Yeah. Um, so when I started working in this field a few years ago, um, I made friends with an individual who's actually an activist in this area and really opened my eyes to what undetectable meant, 
to stigma, to what really people face on a daily basis. And so just to recap, I kind of touched on it earlier, but there's something called U equals U or undetectable equals, unde un sorry, undetectable equals untransmittable. And what that means is when somebody is on HIV medication, who's living with HIV, that what happens when you go on the medication is it actually puts the virus, keeps it to a very low level. And eventually you can reach a point where it's actually undetectable in blood work. And at that point, you actually cannot transmit it to a partner. And some people will ask, oh, well, you know, is that really 100% or is that accurate? Is that true? And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, we say U equals U. So it's not U kind of equals U, it's U equals U. So um, there's a lot of data to support this. Um, there were, if anyone's interested, I mean, our website has links to studies on it. Um, there's a lot of um, governments across the world have already made, their public health agencies have made it very clear uh, that this is the case. Uh, so people need to be mindful of that. On the other hand, we also need to be mindful that not everybody is going to be undetectable and there's challenges to that. You know, if, if the people don't have testing access, they can't get on, you know, if they don't know their status, if they don't have access to medications or funding or support, how, you know, how can they maintain that? So we always talk about a third you uh, being, being universal. Um, nonetheless, people who are on effective treatment, um, when they're undetectable, you know, people will stay undetectable and they, as long as they continue taking their medication, um, there's no risk. Okay. Well, what does it mean to be undetectable exactly? So um, in terms of like the science or the, just the feeling or the science. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the science is basically the virus is such a low level that when you check it on a, on the virus level in a blood test, you can't find it. Um, and that's pretty much it. And a person who's undetectable, um, you know, they don't, they won't, they won't progress past that. It will stay like that. And unfortunately, at this point, we can't completely eradicate it because if a person was to stop the medication, um, gradually the virus level would come back up. Um, and that's pretty much what it is. Okay, so why is the U equals U movement important? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, one thing it's important to educate people to know and to not have stigma. Um, uh, people had done these polls a while ago asking if somebody would um, eat a dinner made by somebody living with HIV. And that actually triggered, uh, there was this, uh, this campaign in Toronto, uh, it wasn't a campaign, it was an event in Toronto called June's HIV uh, Positive Eatery. And it was for people living with HIV who would actually cook for people and to kind of smash stigma. And so the fact that people have very outdated views on HIV is, is a problem um, because it also translates to a few things. One, people get very scared to get tested themselves. They get very paranoid of what if I had HIV and it just, it, it, it then projects to how they treat others who are living with HIV. So they may fear somebody, they may stay away from them. Um, people, some people I talk to who are living with HIV or when they first were diagnosed, one of the things that they comes up is that no one's, you know, no one's going to love me anymore. No one's going to want to be with me anymore is a recurring theme that I've heard. And that's because people know the stigma out there. They know how people perceive these things. And that's why we need to educate people more on HIV because when you educate people and you, you spread messages like U equals U, it breaks down that fear and breaks down that stigma and ultimately improves the health and wellness for people who are living with HIV and also educates other people who are interacting with them and also people who may potentially be at risk. Um, and it's kind of a full circle. So it's a really important thing to communicate. Yeah, I think so too. Um, you know, it, it could be anyone, right? It, 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 people tend to think that it has to be someone who's, you know, potentially more promiscuous or all these other things. We have all these ideas in our minds that simply aren't true. And it's about challenging those from within yourself and also challenging those, challenging that with other people as well. 
Yeah, there's definitely a lot of perceptions. And I've, you know, I've talked to a lot of people over the years and people have said when they, you know, they have HIV, people have said like really nasty things to them on, online, especially. And when you can send things from a blind, you know, so not blind, when you send things from a from back of the screen, you just type, when, whenever you communicate with anyone, I don't, this isn't just for, you know, HIV or sexual health, but there's a human being you're talking to. And you have to understand, would you say this to somebody to their face? And how do you think that would make them feel? And, and, and just not do it. I just, I think people just need to knock it off. Um, I literally remember talking to my team. I'm like, we should run a campaign, just knock it off because I'm just fed up with this at this point. Like you just don't talk to people like this. Um, um, even if you don't understand something, if you don't understand something, ask and learn, um, but don't tear other people down. Yeah. I mean, it's quite common. I think it's a, it's a human nature thing that when we, that ignorance breeds fear and that fear shows up as judgment, anger, shaming other people. And so we can kind of tie it all back to that knowledge, yeah. which is why it's so great to be having you here today with us. Okay, uh, Pharmacist Drew, we are almost out of time. So is there anything else that uh, you wanted to add on this topic? Um, I don't think I have a whole lot to add. I mean, just, just to remind people, you know, get tested, know your status, uh, don't shame other people, don't shame yourself, love yourself. Um, and if you are thinking about PrEP or you think it might be something for you, ask questions, look into it. I've had a lot of people who've, you know, who've reached out to me who, you know, were, were initially thinking of going on PrEP and never did. And then they suddenly reached out to us for emergency PEP. And I, it's happened so many times. Um, and we've had patients also who have taken breaks from their PrEP. And I tell them, you know, you know, at least have a supply for on demand so that just in case you have something, same thing, you know, we tell these people and then we hear about PEP again. Um, and it's just important to, you know, take control of your sexual health, um, be responsible, learn more, uh, be open with your healthcare providers. And that's pretty much everything I would suggest. Awesome. Thank you so much. And if people wanted to learn more about you or find you, where can they do that? So our website is prepclinic.ca. Uh, we're also on Instagram at the prep clinic and on Facebook at the prep clinic. Um, around the time of when this is going to be released, um, we actually are relaunching and with a bit of a different name and different more services, um, but you'll be able to connect with all that at the time. Okay, awesome. So the website will still work. Yes. Perfect. Okay, thank you so much, Pharmacist Drew. So uh, for anyone out there listening, thank you for joining us on this episode of Gay Men Going Deeper. Um, if you are not in the Facebook community, please go to Facebook and join the Gay Men's Brotherhood. Uh, also, you can subscribe to our channel on YouTube and follow us on Instagram. Okay, guys, that's all we've got for you today. Have a great week. I'll talk to you later. Take care, everyone. Thank you.